Namo Ajasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asamasam Buddhasa Namo Ajasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asamasam Buddhasa Namo Ajasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asamasam Buddhasa Buddhang Damang Sangang Namasami This evening I have a theme. <laughs> Doesn't mean the talk's planned. I just have some clue, at least one clue, what I want to talk about. <laughs> so, um, you know, we were practicing today with meditation of the breath and the body, and I thought I'd spend the evening reflecting on what it is to have a body. You know, just expanding the theme and working with it a little bit more. And, uh, you know, in the chanting in the chanting that we did this morning, we reflect on the body is impermanent. The body is not self. And it's an interesting thing when we begin to look at our bodies and just really get a sense of what that is, what that means. You know, I have a brand new baby niece. She was born on the 20th of April. And I got to see her the first day before she was one day old. You know, a precious newborn is just something, something, something special. You know, and she's, she's, she's this big, you know. You know, and everything is perfectly there. You know, in her hands, she could put her hand on my finger, so it just fits, it fits that, that much, you know, the whole hand. And it's the whole person is there in a package that big, you know. And all of us were like that. You know, we all came out, we were that big. You know, even the big fellas in this room were that big. <laughs> you know, so as infants we grow, we become children, and we become adolescents, and we become adults who are full size. So, you know, our cells shift and change, our bones shift and change, everything shifts and change, and yet we have the sense of being, I'm the same person, you know, I'm the same person. But what is the same? You know, so the body's not the same, the cells are not the same, the tissues are not the same. What's the same? There's this sense of continuity, but what's the same? And so then as we we get to be uh, adults, you know, then our bodies start aging. And that's quite a sobering process for most of us. You know, know, our skin gets more um, elastic. And hairs start growing where they didn't, and hairs start falling out where they used to grow, and, you know, body shape starts shifting, and, you know, things are falling down, and other things are moving up, and it's like, you know, it's like the thing is not an in-control experience. Having a body is not in control. I, you know, I remember... I come from Ashkenazi Jewish background. One of the characteristic of Jewish, the Jewish heritage that I come from is the women tend to have hair on their chins. And I remember when I was at a certain age, I was absolutely mortified. I mean, just like absolutely horrified. You know, it's like, what do I do now? <laughs> As if somehow all of these things are in my control and it's, you know, and it's who I am or what I am or there's something about being a woman, you're not supposed to have hair on your face. Well, many do, sorry. but <laughs> You know, it's like, 
It's not who I am. It's the body that I have. It's not in my control. And then I just began to recognize, oh yeah, you know, this is actually, you know, I'm not in control here. This is just body doing what body does. And yet the, you know, the feelings are really strong. So the sense of, you know, how I'm supposed to look or how I'm supposed to appear, what's considered acceptable or not acceptable, and the kind of, you know, the range of, you know, pressure around what is and is not okay around things like this is really, really strong. So we have a body and it has organs and it has muscles and tissues and nerves and all kinds of things that are moving and changing. And then, you know, bodies also have gender. Now, we're in a postmodern age. You know, it's no longer a binary world. It's not this or that. It used to be or at least we used to think it was, but it isn't any longer. And so, you know, even something which used to be apparently straightforward is no longer so straightforward. And then we end up into more the realm of of orientation, sexual orientation, all the rest of that, and that's not fixed either, you know. So we can start out feeling our sexual orientation is one way, And then over the course of a lifetime, we can see, well, maybe yes, maybe not. You know, that too can change. And so, you know, what we take to be solid and fixed and impermanent and all the rest of that is is like, it's an idea. It's not actually the the way it is. So our bodies are shifting and changing quite a lot. And then as we're getting older and having to deal with the fact that it takes longer to get well and it's easier to get out of shape and and then once we're out of shape it takes a whole lot longer to get back in shape you know and and just you know the fact of our faculties shifting and changing and not being as clear or having as bright a memory or being able to remember so many things you know or just needing more time when you get older you usually need more time and you know we don't account for any of these things. You know, it's like, you know, I'm supposed to be how I was when I was 20. You know, that's sort of like the image of myself is what I was like when I was 20. And that keeps steady no matter how old my body gets, you know. And so, you know, there's this there's this process of, of just learning how to be with change and watching change and accommodating change being graceful around change, and also getting a sense of how much of my own sense is is hoping or expecting that things don't change, you know, that it's just like that, you know. And then we have this concept of the body is not self. So, well, I mean, if it's not mine, whose is it? If it doesn't belong to me, who does it belong to? You know, and so there's a there's a sense, well, it's mine and I can do whatever I want with it. You know, I can do whatever I please because this is mine. I, you know, I have, I have ownership over this and I get to make the choices. And so we, we confuse a kind of um, a cultural valuing or a kind of a, a normal way of relating to language 
and uh, a more of a transcendent or a contemplative way of relating to what our bodies are doing and who they belong to. Yeah. So that concept of it's not mine and it's not self, it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't, I don't exist. It just means that there isn't anything within all of this that's fixed that I can locate Tanasanti. I can't open my, you know, if we did it, if we opened me up, tried to pull me apart and tried to find Tanasanti, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to locate Tanasanti, you know. So Tanasanti ends up being the, the sum total of all of it, you know, the physical bits and the liquid bits and the thinking bits and the memory bits and the perceptive bits and the awareness, all of it together is, is what Tanasanti is. And so there's no fixed something that you can locate inside. So, you know, I was in Australia and there was a, a monk who's very, very famous and very highly accomplished. And his way of his way of practice was using a suba. So his kind of access to everything was through looking at the characteristics of the body. So he was talking about this, you know, in very kind of plain language. And women were coming from the retreat in tears, you know, to me, you know. Because what they had heard was a reduction of of the totality of their humanity into you know into blood and pus, and it was like no, I don't accept that. You know, that's not who I am. You know, I, I'm not interested. So rather than seeing the asuba practice as a con- context for reflecting on things in a person in a particular way, what had been happening was these these particular women had taken it personally. You know, that's all that I am. And found it rather offensive and insulting. So, you know, our bodies are made up of of elements. They are made up of earth and water. And they have hot and cold and movement in them. And we do have organs. And, you know, bodies are similar. And so human bodies are similar. And even animal bodies are similar. So if we take a, a mammal, mammal, you know, virtually any mammal will have most of the same organ systems that we have. And I think a, a, a tremendously an, an amount of DNA that we have, you know. So we're not um, different on the level of the physical body. You know, there's a lot of similarities. When we look at an infant, um, you know, one of the things about an infant is, is that their, their nerve sheaths are not, they, their nerves don't have sheaths on them. And so what that ends up translating to is, is, is that whatever anybody is feeling or whatever is in the environment, they don't have any way of separating themselves out from it. They are what is happening around them. And so it's, it's because of the development of what happens with infants that it's so um, critical that they get the care that they need and that there ends up being such a, 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 a catastrophic effect if, if, the, if the care is really neglectful or if there's any kind of violence in the atmosphere because they've got no way of separating it. And those impressions then are residing in the physical body. And so for infants who come out of situations like that, it's usually uh, not an easy uh, process to release those impressions and those uh, of their very early childhood. And there's new kinds of modalities that are present now that support 
being able to access that and release that. Um, but what happens is, is that if a person is not able to release that, then oftentimes what they're doing is they're living their life with those impressions as if those impressions are still current and active. And so it ends up being something that has quite a significant effect on a person's life. Now, when I was in Australia, I was staying in a really uh, a remarkable place. It was in the middle of a national park, and it had... Um, the road into it had been built by convict labor, and the, the, the land itself had been Aboriginal land. And then in a very, very, very short period of time, out of a, a result of illness and displacement and probably violence, the Aboriginal people were displaced. So these people had been in this area for like 40,000 years. And then within a period of 17 years, they were vanquished. Well, what happened is, is that the land actually holds impressions of all of those things. And when you begin to develop some sensitivity, you can feel it. So it was interesting to me that the place was very peaceful on the surface, but underneath the surface, there was a lot of agitation. And it was a retreat center, and there had been uh, a number of people who'd come and done various different things to help heal and um, whatever. And everything that had happened was helpful. But because what, what, what the, the history of what had happened there was so um, strong, so negative, the impressions were very um, uh, still r- remaining in the land itself. And so while I was in Australia, there was an Aboriginal elder who came out and did some ceremony with us a few times. And I was really um, fascinated to watch the, the way that the ceremonies that he did ended up changing the way the land felt. And then what was also very interesting to me to notice was when the land changed, I also felt different. So we're not separate. We actually feel things and reflect things. And so... In the same way, our, our bodies hold impressions of things that we've lived through. And so if we've been through something really joyous, where we feel absolutely safe and totally loved, you know, it's like we have a body memory of that. You know, our bodies remember that. It's not an intellectual memory, it's a body memory. And similarly, if we've been through something that's really quite scary or very sad or very full of grief... You know, our, our, our bodies remain, have a memory of that. And I remember there was one story that I read of a, of a woman uh, who, when she was a child, there was something happened and somebody in the family hit her really, really hard. And they did some Curlian photography on her, which takes pictures of the energetic field of a person's body. And the handprint from when that happened was still was present in the photography. So however many years later, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 years later, and yet the, the energetic imprint of having been hit very hard, there was a hand, a picture of a hand that showed up in this Curlian photography. So, you know, it's true that we've got bones and we've got blood and we've got muscles and we've got excrement and tears. It's true. All of those things are true. But it's also true that our bodies are phenomenally sensitive. 
and are phenomenally receptive to whatever it is that we're around. And so it's like one is needed to have both the capacity to see things for how they are, as well as the skill to be able to understand the exquisite sensitivity that's also present. And the way in which our bodies can hold memory and impression and all kinds of things. So, you know, there have been some situations that I've been through where whatever was happening around me was a lot bigger than my own personal story. And yet my body was having to contend with it as if it was my own. I was processing it as if it was my own. And it was too hard because it was too big. It was too much. And so I needed to have more resources to open it up. And so some of the things that we can experience, like except, for example, in a, in a, you know, in this culture right now, there's a lot of fear. I mean, it's just sort of like there's a lot of fear. And so we've got our own personal story around it, but also we have a whole culture or society which is where the fear is really activated and very strong. And so what sometimes uh, is is interesting and helpful is when to differentiate when what it is that I'm experiencing actually belongs to me or whether it is part of the environment that I'm in that I'm picking up and receiving and processing as if it is mine. And obviously it's not easy to tell the difference between stuff that's coming from my own personal life story and experience and stuff that I'm open to and receptive from the environment around one of the ways in which it's helpful is is because we tend to take everything personally. Now, when we're practicing, it helps give some perspective not to take anything personally, even the stuff which is personal. (laughs) You know, so we've got our own personal story. That's personal. But in a way, it's not personal. It's actually the result of causes and conditions. It's not me and it's not mine. Yeah. So a human body has both the kind of coarse elements as well as phenomenal sensitivity and capacity to feel things and sense things and remember things. And so, you know, when we're sitting on a meditation retreat, we're having to deal with all of these different levels. You know, on the physical level, there's often a lot of tiredness and physical pain, discomfort, as the body is settling in and shifting into gear of spending more time um, quiet, more time contemplating, more time sitting, less distraction. But also part of what's happening with the physical body is the body is processing all the stuff that hasn't actually been attended to. So, you know, when we've had a lot of, of things happen to us and we haven't actually had the capacity or the time or the resource, then it all comes through. And so some of the physical tiredness is physical tiredness, and some of the physical tiredness is an expression of various different emotions that are processing themselves through our physical body. And it takes a lot of skill to be able to work with the variety of things that are happening on um, a kind of resourced level. So it's true, we can just sit things out, watch, breathe, you know, on some level, that's enough. But on another level, when we begin to see that what's actually happening is a rich composite mixture of feelings and perceptions and emotions and memory and reactions to it, then what is sometimes a little bit helpful is to develop some 
resources on how to move with what is actually going on and getting a, a feeling for what's underneath it all. In the same way that I was impressed that these people who came to the, to the land just intuitively knew how to be with the land in a way to help and support healing. And so they created ceremony that basically was the enactment of awareness in the presence of the land. That's what it was. And as there was presence and awareness with the land, then things began to shift. Well, that is what we do with meditation. We bring presence and awareness to our bodies. And as we bring presence and awareness to our bodies, things begin to shift. And sometimes the way it shifts is initially it gets more painful. You know, it gets worse. Because we haven't been paying attention, and then all of a sudden we are paying attention. And so it's a little bit like going into a, you know, a church or into a quiet room, and it just feels you know, peaceful and still. And then the light comes through the window, and then one sees that there's a billion, gazillion dust particles. You know, they were always there. We just never noticed them because the light was not striking the air in a way where the particles were apparent. Well, a lot is similar in our own practice, and working with the body is incredible in terms of giving us the context for being able to see the whole variety of things that happen. You know, on a physical level, the emotional imprints that are there, the memories that come through, that's just from the body, you know. So the, the, the kind of coarseness of it is one element of it. And that can give us some perspective on, you know, just working with things in a way that helps us stay grounded. But it's not the whole picture. And so, you know, getting a feeling for how to listen to this body and begin to understand what is actually being happening, you know, for me has been a really helpful tool to to get some kind of a sounding board so that I have a sense of what's right and what's not right. So my intellect has some capacity for discernment, but it also has remarkable capacity for ignorance and self-deception. You know, I was on a debate team when I was in high school, and one of the things about being on the debate team was is, is that you know, there was a general topic, and I think it was, it was had to do with the, I don't know, penal court or law enforcement or something like that. And we didn't know until like 30 seconds before the, the tournament started whether we were arguing for or against, okay? So we had to be prepared and be ready to argue for or against. And it's really useful to be able to work your mind that way so that you can, you can change and you can figure out and you can think very quickly. But I also realized, you know, what is actually true? You know, where is the truth? If in 30 seconds I can change my mind and argue the other side of the argument, you know? And convince, convincingly, you know, really go for it as if that really was what I believed. So we can convince ourselves just about anything, you know? And when you get really good at it, then you can have a job as a lawyer. (laughs) 
And so what's needed is another kind of a sounding board that's actually able to reflect something which is actually not able just to convince ourselves what we want to know is right. And for me, learning how to listen to my body has been the thing that's really helped me be able to do that. So what am I listening to? I'm not listening to blood and pus and bones. and You know, that's not what I'm listening to. You know? But what I'm listening to are the kind of subtle feelings that I experience as I move through a day in terms of, you know, how relaxed I am, how tense I am, where things are nodding up, where they're not nodding up. And those kind of impressions and signals after a while end up being something that I feel a little bit more comfortable relying on as a kind of accurate sense, yes or no, this is right, this is not right, this is where I feel comfortable, this is not where I feel comfortable. So we have the whole thing, the whole catastrophe, you know, from the coarse to the refined. And it's our opportunity to be able to embrace all of it without leaving any part of that out. You know, one of my dearest, dearest, dearest friends is now uh, a a layperson. She has been a nun for 17 years. And one of the privileges of being a monastic is we get to do extreme things that really don't go down too well in the kind of normal society, you know. So we have retreats in the wintertime and the summertime. And, and in spite of what everyone's fantasy is about monastic life, you know, most of the time we work incredibly hard. And so having time for a retreat like that is just really precious because basically we get to do what we need to do and for our own practice. And we don't need to have contact with anybody. You know, we don't have any duties or obligations and we can decide to eat or not eat. It's like it's really up to us. Anyway, one year she decided on her retreat she wasn't going to wash for a month. And so, and afterwards she gave a talk about oozing orifices, you know. (laughs) And that is one of the things that happens when you've got a body, you know. That is the reality. Yeah, but that is part of the picture. But you see, that part of the picture is sobering and it helps us not get so, um, uh, what's the word, excited, confused, swept away, you know. It's sobering in a way that gives us some ground to work with some of the other things that we have to deal with. But it's like, you know, how many of you would be up for that, you know? It's like... (laughs) It requires a certain amount of courage to try it for oneself under any circumstances. But living in close proximity to other people, it's like you would never try that. You know, it would be way too scary. Yeah. So one of the opportunities that comes in being a monastic is is that we can push the envelope in directions and ways that in a kind of close-knit community, it would be really difficult to do that without a lot of negotiation or a lot of ostracization. (laughs) 
So our physical health, part of it is physical, and part of it is not physical. Part of it, the, our physical health is the result of our body processing our emotions. You know, part of our fatigue is not just physical, it's mental. So as we pick up the body and learn to work with it, as we begin to work with the breath, as we learn to work with energy, with qi, gung, with different kinds of modalities that help us learn how to access the different aspects of what it is that we're experiencing, we begin to start opening up the spectrum to being able to see you know, the totality of what it is to have a body. You know, our bodies vibrate in the presence of other bodies. You know, we feel things. You know, so if somebody comes in in a really bright mood, we will know that. They don't have to say a word. And likewise, if somebody comes in really dark and depressed or angry and furious, we will know that. You know, we just pick it up. And as mammals, we're meant to be with other people, you know? There's a a story of primates, and they took a little monkey, and they put this little monkey in a cage, and they gave it everything it needed, food and water, light, you know? But it was isolated. And that monkey did not flourish. So we're in a society that both completely supports our own individuality and yet our hunger, our longing is to be connected with others. And sometimes we can be and sometimes situation and circumstances catapults us into positions of time where we're alone. You know, we long for companionship or intimacy and yet the reality is, is is that there are times when we're alone. And so those times are both incredibly challenging as well as very, very insightful about ourself as an independent person in the world. And what that means and how to support that in a way that allows the heart to open rather than to close. So our longing for companionship is both something that we're both incredibly used to as mammals and as people, but it's also part of the way that we process our pain is by being together with others. Now, one of the things that I learned about myself when I became a nun, which I didn't know before I became a nun, was that I used to use physical contact to help ground myself. So I would had incredible longing or hunger or need, or, and I was a very affectionate person. And so physical contact would help me stay grounded. So it was as if I would use another person's body to help me ground myself. Now, when I went into the monastery and we had very little contact, I didn't had to see that that's actually one of the things that contact did for me. 
So it was the absence of contact which illuminated thing, something that I couldn't shape or speak about or articulate in any kind of a way. And then, of course, it forced me to figure out how I can ground myself without needing physical contact with another person. And that's partly why, for me, nature is so important, because I can ground through nature. You know, with trees or rocks or the earth underneath me. And so in a, in a, in a kind of a real way, my longing for contact and for connection and for intimacy, I can feel it in the natural environment around me. So, again, when I was in Australia, you know, I went there and it was a foreign situation for me and I didn't feel comfortable at first because, you know, it's just often the case when you're in a new place and you don't know anybody and you don't know what's going on around you. And so I was kind of, you know, timid. I wasn't going off the paths at all and I had this kind of, I don't know what, this kind of fear that something was going to come and get me. I mean, the fact that the most poisonous snakes on the entire planet were living there might have had something to do with it. But I wasn't actually frightened of the snakes. There was just this unspecified fear. But because I felt such a sense of welcome from the land, you know, not just like it's okay, but just like absolutely a joyous sense of delight that I was there, I began to, you know, a little bit, little bit, you know, I'd, I'd step off the path a little bit and do a little bit of exploring. And then eventually, you know, I'd just go wander. You know, I'd just go, I'd go bush. You know, I'd just go across country. And so I was there for an extended period of time. It's the longest time I've ever been in a kind of remote place like that. You know, I was there for just under two years. And there was one period of that time when I was living in a cave Now, it wasn't me being the super ascetic. It was me being the middle-class person. (laughs) The summers there were absolutely beastly hot. You know, they were like 115 or 120 degrees. And there was no electricity, so there were no fans. And my little hut, which I absolutely loved for nine months of the year, for three months of the year turned into an oven, you know. And it was just impossible so I spent one impossible summer on those rocks and I thought this is ridiculous you know it's so hot it feels like your brains turn to liquid and start dribbling out your ears it's like just you know you can't think straight it's just horrendous so the caves were like they were air conditioned you know it never got hotter than 87 even if it was 125 outside so I thought you know I'm going to the caves next summer. So I went to the caves, but, you know, I was scared. I've never done that before, you know. I was kind of, you know, that doesn't have a closing on it. It's just an open space. It was just an overhang, you know. But uh, it was lovely. I just loved that space. It was just wonderful. I had a mosquito net, and that was the only thing that I had that protected me. And, you know, all kinds of creatures would come. You know, it was just, it was just wonderful, you know. 
there would be bats that would fly back and forth on the mosquito net and pick off the mosquitoes. And there was one little mousie that came on my platform and put his hand on my back. Just like that, you know. And I had frogs that came and there were birds that came and, you know, there was a, a, a dingo that came by. But, I, you know, they just, it was, I was like, it was, I was part of the whole thing. It was just lovely. But one of the things that was interesting for me being in that cave was is the way my practice started to shift. So when I got to Australia, you know, I felt like a lump in nature, you know. And then after a while, I felt like, well, you know, it's friendly. I'm with, I'm with family. And then after a while, I started to develop relationships with the different animals, and it was like an intimacy. You know, so I had... I put water out for the birds and, and I recognized their call. And so if I heard them, then I would remember to go fill up the water. And that, you know, that I could, I just got to know the different animals and got to feel a, a kinship with them, that they were, they were really part of my family and there was a sense of communication with them. And then after a while, what started to happen was is that my sense of me being a solid thing began to soften. And then there was less a sense of me being here and nature being there. And then eventually there just began to be a sense of there's just nature. There's just nature. All there is is nature. That's all there is. There's just nature. It's arising and ceasing. It's arising and ceasing. There's just nature. And when there was just nature, there was no edge to where I could find myself. And there was no separation. And it felt like there was just pure flow, inwardly, outwardly, and reciprocally. And then what happened with that is is when there's no edge to where you hold your boundary of who you are, there was no limit to where the compassion flowed. It just, it just flowed. Because everything belonged. Nothing didn't belong. Because there was no edge. So that experience for me really helped support my ability to relax in nature and let nature hold me. In the sense of, you know, that, that it's not only me doing the practice. And I can't tell you the number of kind of difficult things I've been through where it felt to me that if I hadn't really understood that and been able to like sit on the ground, some kind of really difficult things would have happened. Really difficult things would have happened. So it's like as I released or relinquished the kind of limited self sense of self, then I began to feel much more sense of kinship and connection and flow with the environment around me. And that supported me in ways that are hard to describe in a short while, but not insignificant. In critical times, it was things that really pulled me through. So our body, 
body is a temple. It's the place where we practice. And it's made of bones and muscles and tissues and ligaments and organs. Both are true. It's helpful not to get confused about what a body is. It's also helpful to understand how much can be understood when we begin to learn to listen. How to feel, how to know, how to understand. Let me finish with this poem that I have. It's called St. Francis and the Sow. Do you know this one? Nobody's heard of it before. It's been uh, written by Galloway Kinnell. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing as St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch blessings of the earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual spiritual curl of the tail from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths sucking and blowing beneath them the long perfect loveliness of Sao. So as we are able to understand what it is to be a human being and have a body, we allow this blessedness to bloom from within.